You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey Dave, how are you doing today? I am doing great, Nick. How are you? Sun's out, so it must be uh, podcast day. I know. My my wife had just told me this morning that we had entered the uh, time of year when we wouldn't see the sun in forever, and it is bright and sunny out, and uh, <laughs> you know, almost. Uh, I think it's thirty eight degrees. Nothing to complain about. Wow, heat wave up north. No, I'm kidding. Look out! This is beautiful. <laughs> There you have it. So uh, this is uh, episode two in our series of retirement planning headlines yeah, and what they may or may not mean for your upcoming uh, retirement, right? Our little uh, roundup of things we've read over the last couple of weeks that uh, are out there in the media. Interestingly enough, our lead story is an interview with Mr. Charlie Munger, who sadly passed away two days ago now yes. uh, at the ripe old age of 99. Yeah. Want to let our listeners know who Charlie Munger was, Dave? Charlie Munger is is best known as Warren Buffett's right-hand man at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, considered a brilliant investor in his own right and just a real down-to-earth, cool guy. I, I consider him my uh, my favorite fellow Wolverine, although he did not graduate from the University of Michigan. He left to uh, join the Army in World War II. Just uh, just an interesting guy. There are, there are literally books of his wit and witticism out there. And uh, he gave a pretty cool interview that was published in the uh, Wall Street Journal, which is what made our list here before he passed away. Yeah, somewhat surprised by uh, the because I know I knew he just did this, and then you know it wasn't long after a week or two, right, um, that he passed. But uh, and another tidbit, I've been reading a lot on Charlie Munger. I guess supposedly, and I don't know if you lived in this dorm or not, but he has a dorm named after him that has dorm rooms with no windows. Yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not I'm not sure the details of that, but I, I've heard about that. Apparently he designed it so that people or students would uh, go out and mingle with each other because they like sunlight. So he restricted it from their rooms. Yeah. Uh, Different times, probably different codes. Who knows? Interesting though. (laughs) So, so some of the comments from his, uh, his interview here from a few weeks ago, he was asked uh, about stock picking and I loved his response. Why should, why should I try to pick my own stocks? If I'm an individual investor, I don't design my own electric motors. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Or his own egg beaters. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, which is interesting because the man is famous and a billionaire for picking his own stuff. Right. 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 Then uh, <laughs> I love this little witticism. Uh, Who in the hell with my wealth lives in the same house he built himself 70 years ago? It was his comment on... Uh, not trying to inspire the next generation of stock pickers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I find that super interesting about both him and Buffett. Not well, mm-hmm. one, that they're both, you know, living in the same house they've had for years, even though they're two of the wealthiest guys in the world. Yeah. But also this fact that neither one of them really wants to inspire the next generation of them because they're not really sure it can be done like right. it was when they were coming up. There's that aspect of that comment. And then there's also the aspect that I, I love about both Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger that they've never, they, they are. So I, I just reread, I think for the, at least the second time, if not the third time, the millionaire next door. 
And they're not the millionaires next door, they're the billionaires next door, right? Yeah. They're both, they both live in these modest houses driving, you know, they could afford a whole fleet of the car that they own, but, uh, you know, right. just, just still connected to the world in a way that you wouldn't expect. Neither of them have private jets or things like that, even though they could. Right. I think Buffett now like has a rental service. He doesn't own his own, but yeah. <laughs> when you're talking about the what fourth, fifth richest guy in the world. You and I are both very interested in the behavioral finance um, and cognitive biases that go with retirement planning and investing. And uh, I loved this comment too. There are lots of cognitive biases that are significant. One is the constant tendency to overrate your own intelligence and skills in deciding what to do and what not to do. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty interesting insight from a guy who's considered, you know, who could easily have a huge ego about what he's doing. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, and we, and we would all be like, well, yeah, of course he has, you know, he's justified in it by the results, but it echoes something that, uh, Daniel Kahneman, who's one of the, you know, original behavioral finance gurus said that, uh, he was asked by, by another author, um, what the worst cognitive bias is. And he said it was ego. Right. So, you know, and both Munger and Buffett have always been masters of their ego when it comes to uh, investing. And, you know, I think the other thing that really sticks out, and, and um, there was a, a quote in this article and another quote that he's known for, and just that, you know, he goes on to say, one of the reasons I was economically successful in life is because he read so much his whole life, mm-hmm. starting when he was about six. Um, and he also talks a lot about like, it's not necessarily about the smartest. It's mm-hmm. about the person that continues to learn and continues to get better right. and improve. Um, and so it, it's interesting because him and Buffett were both that way in terms of, you know. It echoes the old, the old cliche of not all uh, readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. Yeah. Moving on on our yeah. list, uh, Wall Street Journal had an interesting piece a few weeks ago titled uh, How to Know When It's Time to Retire. This is right up our alley, right? Yeah, Absolutely. So uh, interesting statistic, Uh, average retirement age was 62 in this year, 2023, which is up from the age of 57 in 1991. Mm -hmm. So in about 22 years, the retirement age has increased by about five years. So I thought, you know, obviously interesting. I don't know. I don't have the stats on how long life expectancy has increased in that time. Or if it has, I have to assume that it has. Yeah. Um, But I thought that was uh, interesting. I'm curious if that tracks with like how much life expectancy has increased in that time. I I believe that you would see an increase, but it wouldn't be one for one. So kind of the uh, premises behind this was, you know, if you wait too long, you might regret the extra years you gave to work. But if you leave too early, you could feel lost in your new life, which is a real thing as far as, you know, people retiring early and not quite sure what to do or where to go from there. We do see that quite often. We've talked about this idea quite a bit, I think, over the last year or two here that, um, you know, there's a lot more to deciding when you're going to retire than just are you financially able to retire. Yeah. And I always, you know, say that the people that I know that retire successfully are the ones that are retiring to something, not from something. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it does take some time and effort in thinking through like what that means. Like, obviously, you're, you know, leaving the workforce, but for many of us, especially Americans, 
we, that defines a large part of who we are. Yeah. And so if you're not ready to replace that, you might be floundering a little bit. And I thought, um, I don't know if it was uh, Teresa who um, wrote the article or she was quoted in it, but she did have some interesting insight in terms of how to kind of handle or think through some of that stuff, which I think a lot of us don't really do very well. I tell people all the time, it's, you know, you spend 30 years planning for retirement financially, but you spend about 30 seconds actually thinking about, (laughs) you know, the why of that and what you actually want to do and which is why that's such a big part of our process for people that are retirement planning is figuring out the why and what's next and what you want out of life. Um, But she had some interesting insight. Uh, One of her tips was just to start by listing the six words that best describe you and thinking about how retirement might change those descriptions. Yeah. It's a great way. Um, So for example, if, you know, being a salesperson is your most cherished identity, maybe you're not ready to (laughs) think through, you know, retire and not be a salesperson anymore, whatever that title is. Be ready to be ready to fill that sentence in with something different. And I always liked, um, so we have a worksheet that we do as a part of our process and we can go ahead and put this up in the show notes, but it's our ideal day, week, year where you're just kind of going through and being like, okay, if, you know, I didn't worry about anything, this would be my ideal way to spend a day. And this would be an ideal way to spend a week and a year. Right. And then you kind of compare that to your current. And I think that helps a lot of people think through like, what are the changes I need to make? Right. And how does that help me? And you know, is work a part of that right now that's important or is it not? Or is it maybe less of it? Uh, and thinking through some of that stuff, I think what people find very useful as a part of this kind of overall conversation. Pivot here to the investment side of things, Dave. Yeah, a little, a little more technical here, but interesting. And I think it applies to a lot of uh, individual investors out there. Three big reasons exchange-traded funds went mainstream with investors from CNBC. So just in a nutshell, exchange-traded funds are portfolios of stocks or bonds that trade on an exchange-like stocks rather than the way mutual funds traditionally trade. So they generally are more tax-efficient and they generally track an index and are lower cost than actively managed mutual funds. A lot of individual investors see exchange-traded funds as being synonymous with passive investing. I would add to that list the fact that most major discount brokerages, Schwab, E-Trade, Fidelity, now will let you trade most exchange-traded funds with no trading costs. Right. So they can be an effective tool. They're, They're building blocks like any other, you know, any other tool you might use to build a portfolio. Got to use them right. You know, and, and not to mention like just the uh, advent or the invention of, I don't know if invention is the right word, but you know, we have all these online brokerage firms mm-hmm. now where it used to be you'd have to, you know, call a broker to make a trade. And so they would, for lack of a better word, sell you a mutual fund. Or <laughs> now you can go in and find things on your own. And, you know, and, and so I, I think there's a lot more of that. But also, I think it's a lot more prevalent people like understanding and being more conscious of Mm -hmm. what fees are and passive investing has a strong story right now. If you look at it Mm -hmm. and compare it to active investing. And so, you know, we're starting to see those track records come through and turns out it's really, really hard to consistently beat the market. You know, in our own portfolio models, we use a lot of exchange traded funds. We do use traditional mm-hmm. mutual funds as well, depending on what's the best fit, you know, yeah. tools. 
just tools. Yep. But it, that, that article makes a good intro point for people that are interested in learning more about exchange trade funds and why they're, they're seen as the... Uh, so our next article, Dave, comes to us from uh, Click on Detroit. And as it turns out, Michigan, our lovely home state here, ranks as one of the best places to retire in the U.S., if you yeah. can believe that. Yeah, <laughs> they're basing this on a uh, U.S. news study where they, they actually pulled seniors in retirement looking at uh, mm-hmm. different aspects of quality of life. And uh, lo and behold, we've got Grand Rapids, Lansing, Ann Arbor, Detroit, and Kalamazoo all ranking in the top 100 in the country. Initial reaction is surprising somewhat to see Detroit on there. You, I mean, most people don't think of Detroit as a, you know, a good place to retire. I guess it depends on the criteria that you have. But also cost of living, things like that have a big impact on a yeah. survey like this and if nothing else, cost of living in Michigan it tends to be pretty good. <laughs> well, the interesting thing, I think, for people planning retirement with these articles is not the outcomes per se, like grabbing that that magazine and saying, oh, gosh, you know, Lansing's really high on this list. I should move to Lansing. The, the right. value of these isn't, isn't the outcomes, which are just clickbait if you will. Right. It's really about the process, right? Look at the questions mm-hmm. that they asked these people and how people responded and ask yourself, are those the things that are important to you? Right. Because you may get very different results or you may find that the things that bump Dan Arbor to the top of the list aren't as important to you as some of the things that might be drawbacks from your point. Like so, winter. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> Notice none of these are uh, north of the 45th parallel, but uh, yeah. uh, it, it's more about the thought process than the actual outcomes. And I, I always find these interesting to at least get the conversation started with people like, where do you want to be? Why would you want to be there? What's important to you? Not what's important to yeah. click on Detroit's, inter- well, I'm sorry, uh, U.S. News's uh, study. You know, it's interesting to me. I see a lot of these. And like you said, like depending on what is going into the survey or the rankings. Like, I mean, theoretically, we could probably come up with a ranking system that took all of these hundred places and they didn't show up on the list, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really more about thinking through the process of what's important to you if you are considering moving in retirement and what does that look like? And then, you know, doing and finding a, either a ranking system that's already done it for you or doing your own research on what those important things are to you. So our next article uh, is an interesting one. I've seen a lot of buzz on social media about it, and it comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, and it's titled Income Raise Happiness. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it was done on a bigger study. Is this the one that was done on a bigger study by one of the uh, 401k providers, I think? I think they combined some a couple different yeah. studies here looking at these links, but essentially looking at like, depending on where you're, what your income is, what's the utility of making more money on happiness. And uh, my favorite thing here was, was as I read it, they, they quoted one of my favorite writers on the topic, Elizabeth Dunn, whose book, Happy Money, I think we did a review here like two years ago of that book. Yeah, if not, we definitely should. Yeah, if we if we didn't <laughs> if we didn't do that, I remember I, I'm pretty sure we did it. 
We can look that up and link to it in the show notes. But, you know, her book, Happy Money, informs a lot of our day-to-day conversations with people. And the basic idea is once you get beyond a certain basic living income, the value of money in terms of happiness flatlines. And uh, so this this article is a good intro to that idea and kind of puts in perspective the fact that the more money you make, the more money you think you need to make for happiness, but the actual results don't uh, bear that out. Yeah, super interesting. And again, I can't remember if this is probably a part of the study, but like, it doesn't matter where you're at on the income spectrum. <laughs> Uh, pretty much everyone feels like they need yeah. more, right? Yeah. So like, even if you're making, you know, $250,000, you feel like you, you'd you be happier if you were making 350, right? right? <laughs> In like math, like when they, all the studies that they do show that that's not true, but that's kind of like the feeling. And it goes back to, I think this was in one of Morgan Housel's books. And I know we brought it up on this before, but, and I can, you know, I'm going to butcher who said it. I think it was, uh, J.D. Salinger, maybe, but uh, he was. They were talking about how the, how much money this hedge fund manager made, and he said, "Yeah, but I've got you know, I've got enough." <laughs> that was one of my favorite writers, Joseph Heller. Joseph so, Heller. So for is. once, I'm not the one misquoting somebody. <laughs> I can actually tell you, it was uh, it was Joseph Heller. But yeah, just this interesting comment of like, it doesn't matter how much money you make. It really you what you should really focus on is understanding and feeling like you have enough and making more money is never a good way to feel like you have enough, right? I think that's like the general point is every time you make more money that you just raise the bar. The the hedonistic treadmill is the fancy word for it. So yeah, I loved this one when I saw it and uh, because it's done kind of tongue in cheek too, but uh, how to avoid being boring at 60. And uh (laughs) <laughs> yeah, this was in the Wall Street Journal a week or two back, and uh, this is a, this is about a guy. Turn, uh, you know, as he turns sixty, I think his comment was he realized that his friends didn't want to keep hearing the same stories over and over, <laughs> and he, so he needed to go out and find some new stuff to talk about. And so he set some rules. I thought I, I just I, I thought this thought process was really cool. It was like you know this is not a bucket list in the normal sense, right? One of his rules was no stereotypical stuff like jumping out of an airplane, you know, but also nothing so dangerous that he might not be able to do the other 59 things on his list. (laughs) You know, bullfighting was out, you know, Um, (laughs) nothing, nothing went on the list. It was just a matter of spending money. You know, if it was just a matter of saying, I'm going to go buy this experience, it didn't count. And then he eliminated anything that was too simple or easy to do and things that were too complex. Like I think his example was like raise a pig from a piglet all the way through, you know, (laughs) and then butcher it and make a fancy dinner. Nothing that was going to take the whole year just of itself. So examples he gave were he was not a cook. So he cooked an extravagant meal for his family, you know, where it wasn't it wasn't an easy, you know, box macaroni and cheese kind of deal. He got a full menu of several courses spent a whole day doing it and uh, fed his family. I thought that was pretty cool. And then the, uh, he went on a police ride along. I'm not sure how you wow. arranged that, yeah, but right. uh, you know, he had some, some interesting experiences out of that. This one, uh, I, he attended a mega church because hmm. he had never, you know, he'd always heard about these things and never yeah. like, known what to think of it. 
And the last one, and I'm, I'm going to a arts council fundraiser tonight. So I thought this was kind of funny. He bid on art at an auction and then had to like sweat it out that he was going to actually win the auction. His goal was to not come home with a piece of art, but he had to bid on something. So, so these are just a few examples of his 60, but each one of these things he said made him think about the world a little bit differently. And each one turned out a little different than he had envisioned. So, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about goals and retirement, things you want to do, and we get a lot of stereotypical answers. So I just thought this was kind of a cool way to think about different ways to liven up. Yeah, no, I, I love everything about yeah. that. I mean, none of that stuff, like you said, is like just spending money, but yeah. um, I'm sure he's got some pretty interesting stories to tell and things <laughs> to talk about now that <laughs> he won't be as boring. his friends want to hear. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So. Uh, so our next article, Dave, comes to us again from the Wall Street Journal. I'm pretty sure it's no secret uh, what you and I read the most of. Yeah. Um, but this is an interesting one to me on personal finance. And the headline was, uh, uh, now is a bad time to spend money. So I guess right. so the, the question is, is there a good time to spend money? <laughs> it's all relative, right? And uh, right, Exactly. You know, I, I liked your comment in, in the notes about it. I think you nailed it, that it's a bad time to spend money you don't have. Yes. <laughs> and, and so what they're getting at is interest rates are high, right? So mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're borrowing money, if you're a net spender, then right. you're going to pay more for it now than you have, you know, for most of our adult lives, right? Yeah. But if you're a saver, you're going to be paid more to save. So right. you take both of those things together and it's a really lousy time to spend money. It's a great time to be yeah. a saver. It's a bad time to be a net spender. So yeah. being financially responsible right now is is more important than ever. Which is extremely difficult considering the pressure of Christmas mm -hmm. and, you know, all the advertisers are out in full force and Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all the deals and all that stuff. Um, so, again, like being financially responsible is probably more important than it's been just given where the rates are and also like the uncertainty of the economy and the things in the future of how that might all pan out. But, you know... It's not a podcast episode of uh, Kitchen Table Finance without talking about things like an emergency fund. And budgets, right? like, yeah. Being responsible. And a budget. And, yeah. you know, the best time to start planning for Christmas spending is the day after Christmas because you have the most time to save up. And mm -hmm. so what, you know, what you should be spending right now is a year's worth of saving from last year. And so obviously not everybody's in that situation, but this is where pre-planning makes so much more sense because... Like we said, it's not necessarily a bad time to spend money. There's some really good deals out there and it's a great time to be able to give gifts to people. But if you haven't planned for it starting, you know, 12 months prior, then you might, it might be a bad time for you to spend money or spend more than what you have. Exactly. So again, one of those clickbait headlines things where, um, you know, <laughs> people get too caught up in, in some of this stuff, but a good sound financial principles Right. If you've been practicing those, then it's not necessarily a bad time to spend money for you. Our last one here to close out November, <laughs> harbinger of conversations to come, I think. Inve it's too early, but it's starting. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Let the games begin. <laughs> Investors fear the 2024 elections may hurt retirement savings from CNBC. Yes. So, yeah. There's always going to be plenty to worry about and you can always count on Washington making a crisis out of everything that they possibly can. 
in a way, you know, I don't want to dismiss people's concerns over mm -hmm. the election in markets. Uh, I don't want to, we don't want to dismiss those out of hand. But if you step back and think about how politics really works and how the markets really work and how the economy really works, you'll likely see that most of this is over, overwrought. A lot of, and we've done a podcast on this, well, it's probably four, about four years ago <laughs> right. on the, you know, the 2020 elections. And, you know, I think a lot of that will hold true again. And it's just a matter of like, if you look at the facts behind the market impact of a president, whether it's mm -hmm. Democratic or a Republican president, there's not really a whole big difference one way or the other. No. So if you're voting for the market, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you vote on, no. right? No. <laughs> and the effects aren't there or aren't statistically relevant over history. But this article says, you know, a poll cites that 68% of Republican voters and 57% of Democratic voters expect that the election outcome will impact the stock market and the economy. And so that perception and that reality are not the same. Just like every election year, you're going to see an uptick in volatility, the market going up and down. But once we have a conclusion, it's probably, you know, going to go back to a more normal cycle. You know, the other interesting thing, and, and, you know, we can end on this one, Dave, but there's been some fear or some things thrown around about how Social Security might be on the ballot this year in terms of who gets elected and what they potentially do with it. Care to care to take on that one? Oh, I feel like I should have this on a recording where I could just push a button <laughs> when the question comes up. But in a nutshell, again, not to dismiss concerns. There's, there's, there are concerns about Social Security's viability, mm -hmm. but there are very realistic things that when push comes to shove and we get past the crisis talk, there are some very real things that can be done that make Social Security perfectly viable that are going to hurt everybody a little bit but nobody too much. Yeah. And we would expect there'll be some kind of compromise because at the end of the day, what's the, what do they call social security? How many times have we said it on this podcast in different <laughs> forms? It's the third rail of American politics. Again, I should have it on yeah. a t-shirt or something. <laughs> no politician survives touching the third rail. They're going to make it sound very scary. You know, I always think of the, uh, Daryl Hammond playing Al Gore back in 2000, you know, on Saturday Night Live talking about putting Social Security in a lockbox like it was a, yeah. a prisoner that he was never going to release. And, you know, so this is nothing new. This is nothing new. Yeah. And yeah. it will continue and it will continue to sound very scary. And you're going to continue to see stuff like this in the headlines. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, come back to... Maybe you play. Maybe you play this uh, this uh, this last thirty seconds of this podcast on a loop every time you read something on Social Security, right? Right. right. <laughs> and our uh, recent post on uh, how to deal with media. Yeah, there you go. Is it all? Love I mean, it. that's it's very much part and parcel. With that being said, Dave, uh, second installment, I believe, was a success. Looking forward to see what uh, they decide to write about here in December. I'm and sure we'll, be we'll back have a with, good uh, list in, in January with an update. Yeah, good. It has been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. 
You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.